Good morning, church. Come on. Okay. Let's pray first. Lord, I thank you for the ability to come together this morning. I pray that you will let me speak the words that you would have me speak, and that you would give us all the ears to hear what you're trying to show us and to teach us this morning. In your name, amen. So to recap from last week, Scott talked about how we have been brought into a new exodus, and just like the Israelites, the exodus is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of the story, and so we have been brought out, and so now we're to invade the land, and that's not an active, uh, that's not a passive process, that's an active process, that's something we actually do all the time. Now, When we do that, we recognize that things have changed some, right? So no longer do we battle against flesh and blood. So that means that we've been brought into spiritual warfare. Now, for me, I often stop and ask strange questions, and this is one of the ones that I'm going to ask, which is, why are we even qualified to join into spiritual warfare? I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, other than extremely rare events, humanity isn't invited into spiritual warfare. To make it even more clear, if you go to Psalm 8, it'll actually say in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So we're supposed to battle something that's above us? Or is there something more we should be thinking about here? So to think about this deeper, I want to look at two phrases that I think will give us more insight into why we've been invited and why we are qualified to join into spiritual warfare. The first one is saints. Now, saints, to me, if I just stop and think about what does saints really mean, I really don't have a good feel for it. It's a pretty unclear term. What does that really mean? You know, Paul uses it in Ephesians 1.1, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Some sort of title. You go to Colossians 1.12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So maybe that title has something to do with spiritual warfare, maybe. But again, it still leaves us sort of confused about what what it is. So what I'd like to do is take you to Jude 1 through 14, or 1 verses 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, on all, and to convict all, the ungodly, of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have, hold on. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now that holy ones is exactly the same Greek word that's used for saints. And the literal translation for what saints means is holy ones, which is a pretty amazing title, really. I mean, every time they tell you saints, which is like one of the most common phrases that you are referred to in the New Testament, they're saying you're holy ones. I mean, that's just a huge claim right in itself. But it gets bigger than that. And if we go to Psalm 89, we'll see why. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? 
So, you're not just being called holy ones, you're being said something about spiritual beings here. And just to even concrete this a little bit more from the standpoint of, yes, the oldest version of the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, uses exactly the same word in this, this, these verses that is used for saints in the New Testament. So it's not just a possible, well, these may be doing the same thing. No, they are the same thing. So another, another phrase to think about in the same light, son of God. Now, until recently, if you were to ask me what son of God, um, sons of God means, I'd have told you it's something probably along the lines of the politically incorrect way of saying children of God. I mean, no one would actually tell you, say it exactly like that, but that's what we think, right? We read sons of God and we say, ah, what he means is children of God. And at one level, yes, that's absolutely true. But that's not where we should stop with that. So we'll read a couple verses first. Galatians 3, 25 and 26. Now the faith that has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then also Romans eight nineteen, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So again, just as we did at the beginning, we'll do again here, we jump to the Old Testament looking for that phrase to try to give us more insight into what that could possibly mean for us today. Now, if you go to Job 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And again, Job 2, 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, and also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So again, we're starting to see something about spiritual beings and this association with the terms that are being used for us. And we'll look at one more just from the standpoint of how it works. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. Now, where were you, um, this, is, this is God talking and questioning Job. And it's, it says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang through and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So again, you get this understanding that we're starting to say something about the fact that the claims and the titles that were being given in the New Testament are more than just a title, but it's actually reminding us of specific titles that were used in the Old Testament and reminding us that we are not just flesh and blood, but we've been promoted to something more than that. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3, just make find that fast. <laughs> When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you know that the saints will judge the world and the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Do you get that? Here, I'll read it and I'll replace saints with the word we just learned, okay? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the holy ones? Or do you not know that the holy ones will judge the world and the world is to be judged by you? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you know that we are to judge angels? 
how much more than matters pertaining to this life. You have been promoted. You have been upgraded to something more than you were before. And that is why you've been invited in to spiritual warfare. Now you may say to me, well, David, what is it that makes us sons of God? Well, great. Paul actually answers that question for us. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are sons of God, and you are holy ones. And that's what we're talking about here. It's because Christ died on the cross, and when he came, came through death, conquered death, and Pentecost happened, you now have been given the Spirit of God. And because you've been given the Spirit of God, you now are more more than you were before, and that is why you're invited into spiritual warfare. So to, concrete, or to, to look at this in a slightly different way, um, we actually have a Bible project video. Um, they've done a whole section on spiritual beings, angel cherubim, Satan demons, things like that, and they also have one on new humanity. And we're going to just look a little clip from that. Now, humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're made of the dirt, like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat of the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imaginations so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the garden. They're cut off from the source of true life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, and violence. But God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human. But he's also way more. Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calling. And Jesus was tested by that same deceptive spiritual being, not in a garden, but out in the wilderness. Yeah, it tells Jesus the same lie. You could rule the whole world right now if you come under my authority and do things my way. But Jesus knew that that lie leads to death. So he rejected it and was victorious over the spiritual power of evil. And so then Jesus started announcing that God's heavenly rule was arriving here on earth through him. And so he went around confronting the power of death in his healings and his exorcisms. Jesus was opening the way back to eternal life, to rule with God and become new humans. Yes, he also confronted our imaginations by teaching how corrupt spiritual powers enslave whole communities with their lies. Lies like, my tribe is superior to your tribe. But Jesus said every human is an image of God. Or the lie that power comes through force. While Jesus taught that real power requires sacrifice and generosity. Or the lie that peace comes through violence. 
while he said that true peace comes through self-giving love. This is a new kind of humanity. Yeah, a humanity transformed by God's life and his love. So you are new humanity. And so you've been brought into God's new life. And as such, that is why you've been brought in and allowed to now participate in spiritual warfare. Now, if we're going to look at spiritual warfare, I find that sometimes it's really helpful to look at what it isn't as much as what it is. Because sometimes to recognize what something is, it helps to know what it isn't. So at the end of that clip, um, it actually talks about a couple of things, right? So the first one is my tribe is superior to your tribe. Now, you know, again, I'm, this is one of the reasons it's exciting, sort of like what we're talking about doing at the beginning of, of next year with all of the churches working together and all preaching through marriage and family together, right? So we're recognizing that not only both outside of the church, but even in the church, we need to work on our unity more. And so we're, we're working on that. And that is extremely important. But even with that, which is if you start to get this idea in your head that you are now... Um, promoted, you've been upgraded, it can start to feel like very easy to look and say, for those who don't have the Spirit of God, you know, I'm, I'm up there now. I'm doing better. And that's not because we're all made in the image of God still, right? So we still have to recognize that as we interact with people, that even though we've been promoted, that doesn't in some way give us uh, permission to treat others with some sort of like uh, lesser quality. Second one comes, power comes through force. I think that one comes in different ways with different societies. I think for our societies, one of the ways I see this one is, is the um, over-obsession with politics and the belief that somehow what's going on in the political sphere has anything to do with God's kingdom and the growth. If, if the party that you're associated with isn't doing well, then God's kingdom must not be growing. Nah, it's not the way it works. It doesn't stop whether your political sphere is, is working or not working. That's just not the, the way it is. You look at Israel, and you recognize that as Israel is faithful, no matter what the political sphere wants to do, God writes the country. And vice versa, as they're unfaithful, God's people is unfaithful, their country goes that way. And that's the way it works. You go to Judges, at the beginning of Judges, it actually shows you how it goes and it lists every single um, one of the tribes, and it talks about how they were unfaithful in their claiming of the land, who they left in. And so that's really where we need to be, right? Which is, it's talking about locally. Don't worry about the, the, the global or national level. Not that those aren't important, but you're responsible for your local area to reclaim that area where you're planted. That's what spiritual warfare is about. It's not about trying to get so focused on the big, you forget to do what's here. That's what is, what's different. The final one is peace comes through violence. I think this one is really a big struggle for the American church because there seems to be such um, an intertanglement between things like the Second Amendment and the church. And that there seems to be this thing which is like, well, I trust God, but worst case scenario, I got my guns. And that's... <laughs> I. We battle not against flesh and blood. And so spiritual warfare doesn't look like me breaking out my guns if people start invading. That's not what we're called for. Okay, so what does it look like then if those aren't the things? 
So I want to look at four different chapters uh, or four different sections in Matthew. So the first one, the Bible Project video sort of already talked about, which is Jesus is tempted in Matthew 4. He goes out into the wilderness and he interacts with that same evil that we see in Genesis 3. Now that evil offers things that in and of themselves aren't wrong. Good and, you know, knowing good and bad, you know, read Genesis 1. God's talking about what's good and there's spots where he doesn't. Day 2 isn't labeled as good. He leaves it out. So there's something about day two that's not good. He's teaching already what's good and what's not. So knowing good and bad isn't wrong. And so it's not about not knowing it, but it's about recognizing that there is a difference between how it's taken or whether it's given. And it's the timing and the method that's important. So again, you know, Jesus is in the wilderness. He's offered food. There's nothing wrong with food, but that's not what he's supposed to be doing at the moment. Jesus has offered God's, you know, the Satan says, well, what about God's protection? You know, you, how do you know that God's going to protect you? He knows that. He doesn't need to test it. And finally, he's given, offered all of God's kingdom, or all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, Jesus did come for all those things, but it's not in the way that Satan wants to offer it. So there's something about resisting those offers that's important, right? And knowing the time and the method that they should be taken. And that is with God's guidance. And you'll also notice that when Jesus responds, he uses what Ephesians 6 calls as the sword, right? The word of God. And so knowing your sword, knowing your weapon intimately is an important part of resisting the devil. Matthew 8, um, 8 and 9. So remember, we, talked through, we preached through Matthew and we looked at the idea, the fact that um, Jesus, or the way Matthew lays out the whole structure of Matthew is such that Jesus is living out the history of Israel and living it out faithfully instead of unfaithfully. So that means 8 through 11 is about an invasion of the, the land. That's what we're seeing there. Now, in this case, when we look at what happens in Matthew 8, we don't notice much in the way of the type of things we would expect to see in the invasion. You know, you, you don't see him going and attacking people. Instead, you get him cleansing a leper. So he's bringing life where there was death before. He's healing a centurion, so he's expanding the kingdom to not just include the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And he's, you know, he's healing him. If you continue on, he's healing Peter's mother. Um, he calms a storm. He, brings, um, he, he does deal with demons and interacts with them. He heals another paralytic. He calls Matthew. So this, all this is, is going on. This is, this is how Jesus is showing, or, you know, Matthew is showing us how Jesus invades the land. It's not with a sword in the sense of an actual physical sword. He's coming in and he's taking things back. He's bringing life where there wasn't life before. He's bringing healing where there wasn't healing before. He's bringing restoration. He's bringing expansion into different areas. Um, Rich Lusk wrote an excellent article on this specific section, and um, he has this quote, the transformation of holy war is at the heart of the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus did not come to kill Joshua, but to be killed for the sake of, Canaan, of Gentile sinners. He did not come to destroy the pagan nations, but to save and convert them. He now sends his church on a mission to all the nations of the earth, but as a mission of restoration, renewal, and healing, not a mission of destruction, 
Furthermore, Jesus is with us to ensure the ultimate success of our holy war mission. So let me read that last little section first. He now sends his church on a mission to all the nations of the earth, but it is a mission of restoration, renewal, and healing, not a mission of destruction. Furthermore, Jesus is with us to ensure the ultimate success of our holy war mission. Mm. Matthew 16. Um, Steve and I preached through that a while back, um, and we looked at the fact that that has so much sort of supernatural um, elements going on to it. Um, Jesus is, gives the keys of the kingdom or tells them that, that, that the disciples are also going to receive the keys of the kingdom um, and that that's going to expand the, the war, if you will, to not only be the, just Jesus included in it, but also us, right? And so there's an expansion, but in the same way, you get Jesus coming in and just like the biblical character that we know that went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, he meets a woman, he heals her child, and then comes back to Israel. He does something, and then he goes up on a mountain to meet God. That parallels with Elijah, right? So when you read that section of Matthew, you recognize that all of a sudden, what's going on here is paralleling Elijah. Now that section also has to do with Elijah battling Baal, right? I mean, that's one of the few times where we get to see those um, humanity being brought into spiritual warfare. And he, he stands off against Baal because he, well, Baal is associated right with um, with the skies, with rain, and Elijah says, uh-uh, none of that's going to happen. And so with God's help, he stops it, and he shows that God is the true king and not Baal. In the same way, Jesus doesn't just reclaim Israel, but now he's actually gone outside of Israel. He's gone to an area that in their, era, in, in their day and age was known to have basically a physical gates of hell. He goes to that area, and he says, on this rock— I'm building my church. So he doesn't just let an area that he goes, well, well, maybe that area shouldn't be reclaimed. He goes, no, I'm reclaiming it. I'm taking it back. In the same way, that's what we're called to do, right? We're, we're called to not just go, well, that area is too scary. It's too far gone. No. We go back and we take it all back, just in the same way that Jesus did. And the final one I want to look at is Matthew 26 through 28. Now, if I were to tell you or ask you the question, what is the greatest defeat of supernatural evil since the foundation of the world? What would you tell me? Correct. Yeah. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Now, if you were to recognize that fact, then you would say that, at least for me, it would be reasonable to then say, what was the weapon he used? Because I'd like to use that weapon. <laughs> it's scary, right? It's inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, but it's the biggest, you know, it's the greatest defeat. So for us to stop and say, well, I like these, you know, these little pea shooters or that type of thing, which aren't pea shooters, but I'm just saying in comparison, right, that if we are unwilling to go where that leads, then we stop short of what God's given us. He's given us the ability, as crazy it is and as hard as it is to wrap our heads around, he's given us the ability to suffer, to expand his kingdom. Revelation three twenty one. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we conquer in the same way that Jesus conquers. And if we draw the line and say that's too far, then we limit what the kingdom is capable of doing and what we're capable of doing in Christ, in the spirit.
Quote from N.T. Wright, those who would implement Jesus' kingdom are prone to forget the way in which Jesus became king of the world. It was not through force, but through suffering and sacrifice. The principalities we confront are cruel, mean, and dirty. Martyrdom of one sort or another, suffering of one sort or another, is what kingdom bringers must expect. Our big story is not a power story, but a love story. We are called to be kingdom people and also cross people. So, as always, I like to end, before I finally close, I like to open it up for questions. Any questions before I close? Yeah? Just a thought. Um, mm-hmm. You were asking the question. Like Jesus sent out the, I think, 80 or 70. Disciples, 70 yeah. Disciples. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he said when, when they came back, he saw Satan fall from heaven. Mm-hmm. So, sending people out to do godly things is also something that will Right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, correct, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's actually a lot, there's a lot of interesting things going on in that, that passage, and uh, um, yeah, the fact that um, there's something about Satan being sort of like taken from one position to, an, you know, basically brought down, um, I think is, is a huge, a huge deal, and, and um, again, is, is a great reminder to us that where, where he's seated now is not where he was before, um, and that's a, that's a big claim. Anyone else? All right. Then I'm going to close with N.T. Wright's quote. Those who would implement Jesus' kingdom are prone to forget the way in which Jesus became king of the world. It was not through force, but through suffering and sacrifice. The principalities we confront are cruel, mean, and dirty. Martyrdom of one sort or another, suffering of one sort or another, is what kingdom bringers must expect. Our big story is not a power story, but a love story. We're called to be kingdom people and also cross people. Lord, I thank you that you have brought us into your kingdom, that your spirit dwells in us. And as we walk in your spirit, that we have been given the authority to go out to battle against the principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood, but to conquer and reclaim your, your creation, your kingdom, and to grow it more and more. And I pray that you will continue to give us the ability and the, uh, the, the trust in you to be able to live that out more fully every day. In your name, amen.